have to get this into a big circle so that we can all, you know. We'll do join. that. Yeah, yeah. We'll do that. That's coming. Anyway, greetings. And uh, we don't know where Rabia is, but I'm sure it's somewhere good. And um, she's not coming today. We don't know. We don't know. Oh, mystery. Yeah. God knows. We like mystery. Yeah. Well, we roll with it anyway. Um, so welcome, welcome. And uh, I'm so glad we're all here. A reminder about the calendar. Next week we won't be meeting. In between uh, uh, that during that vacation week, we're just not going to do it. And uh, we're meeting again on January 3rd, which is the first Tuesday in January. And then there was a change in our schedule because uh, we were going to meet on the 3rd, the 10th, and the 17th. But I'm going to be away on the 17th, and the other instructors are available on the 24th. So our final three meetings in January are going to be the 3rd, the 10th, and the 24th. So I'll repeat that next time, but I just wanted you to get that uh, 24th. Okay. That, that weekend in between, is that MLK weekend? Yeah, that's MLK weekend. Because I'm, I'm away that weekend too. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I'll be that week at an annual re retreat with some wonderful rabbinic colleagues that I hate to miss, and I decided I was going. So uh, that's, my, that's one of my beautiful special things to do. In fact, uh, let me mention something about that, which is that we call our retreat Chevraya, which is named after the, the band of companions in the Jewish mystical literature, the Zohar, uh, because we get together to study mystical texts. And uh, one practice that we follow that's my, one of my highlights of the year for me in terms of leadership <coughs> is that one morning we get up before dawn, we're in California in this beautiful property, and we take a walk out into the field to, to wake the dawn, which was a practice of the Kabbalists, not only, I'm sure, not just a Jewish practice. And I get to lead that service, so that is always one of the highlights of my year. We go out and we wake the dawn. That's where I'll be in January. So we're going to do a mixture of talking and doing today, and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Matthew to uh, start us in any way you want. Okay. I had a question for uh, yes. Matthew, though. I would like question. to know what's going on at St. Yeah. Gregory's yeah. for Christmas and Christmas Eve. Oh, okay. So just a simple logistical question about service times. St. Gregory's, we're having our Christmas Eve service slightly earlier this year at 6 p.m., mm -hmm. um, and that's to help families and people don't want to drive too late at night and all of that. So um, uh, at 6 p.m., just your traditional Christmas Eve mass. Um, you know, we'll have a candlelight singing of Silent Night, just, you know, very traditional service. And then Christmas morning this year falls on Sunday morning, uh, so it will just be Sunday morning, 10 a.m. as usual. But anyone who wants to tiptoe into either Christmas services, or, or, or dive fully into, you don't have to tiptoe, right. you're welcome to come on uh, Saturday at 6 or Sunday at 10. 
Oh, that's yeah, great. And as you know, Saturday is also the first night of Hanukkah. Uh, I remembered, it happens once every 19 years that the, the Gregorian and the Hebrew calendars line up. Uh, and so we're going to celebrate here. We were going to wait, we're at 6.30, you'll see the flyers out there. We're going to uh, uh, serve Chinese food, which is a Jewish American custom. <laughs> We're going to light our menorahs, and then we're going to have a silly play that we're presenting, a reading of a, of a play called Oi, which is a bunch of sketches. Uh, so, because Hanukkah is, that's Hanukkah-ish. Yes? Can I pose a nagging question that a couple of us have had? Go ahead. It's not on topic, necessarily. But we might not answer it now. Okay. A distinction between the terms Islam and Muslim. Clarification of those oh, can you clarify that? Well, it's, I mean, they're both from the same root. Islam is, I mean, in general, Islam is the, um, is the religion, and Muslim is an adherent to the religion, and they both have the root in, it's the same root as surrender, and the same root as peace. Salam. Salam, Islam. So it has the connotation of um, surrender in the sense of giving over to what is greater, what is higher, what is more spiritual, and the connotation of doing that which brings peace. So a Muslim is a devotee of Islam. Yeah. Islam is surrender, and Muslim is one, one who, who surrenders. surrenders. Yes. Those who know Hebrew tenses. It's equivalent to Jew and Judaism? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's yeah. nothing political associated with one term or the other. No. Mm -hmm. Because I thought last week you said something about Islam being a combination of religion and politics. I think I think what I, I if you got that impression that was a misnomer, there it, I I think what I said is there is because of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, status as a both a political leader and a religious leader. Um, Are you able Islam, to hear Karuna okay right now? Because we can use the mic, but it, we don't have to. Islam, Anyone have any trouble? Islam has been tended to have more of a political side to it. Not that Christianity in particular, and even now Judaism today, doesn't. But it's been more embedded in the, in the religion. That was the point she was making. Yeah, and not, but it, um, saying Islam or saying Muslim does not imply some sort of political affiliation. I think, again, for the purpose of clarification, the word Islamist, which is a current word, has a different connotation. But that's distinct from Islamic. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. Correct. Uh, does anyone want more clarification about that? Yes. Can you? Clarify. Well, I don't know where it came from. Right, it's very, it's very I, I don't, new. I don't know why they're using that, but it does tend to, um, it, when I've seen it in context, it seems to be indicative of the, um, you know, more Salafi, Wahhabi, um, fundamentalist um, uh, mm -hmm. factions of Islam. Um, I don't know exactly where... It is a modern political term that's used to designate um, Muslim ideologies that are political and Muslims who want to um, impose an Islamic state. Um, right. so, so these fundamentalist political ideologies that want to establish an Islamic state, people who hold that view are called Islamists. All Muslims are not Islamists. 
so maybe another parallel Zionists? Ye yes, and this, um, ye yes, in the sense that there are Islamists who are in no way related to any forms of terrorism or extremists. They just want to establish an Islamic state, and they may not be violent. They're, so there, there are gradations. There's there are Muslims. Then there are Islamists who hold political ideologies, and then there are Islamist terrorists who are another thing. So you can oh, have Zionists. Yes, you can that have Zionists who want a Jewish state, a but Jewish who are not terrorists. National right. movement. But then you could mm -hmm. have Zionist terrorists, you know. But they don't have to go together. Just yeah. That thank you, yeah. Islamist. Yeah. And do you know when it started to be used? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I would think it started really. Showing up on the scene in the 80s, maybe, um, 70s, 80s, that language probably came into play more. And a lot of the Islamic, Islamist ideologies were reactions against colonialism. Um, you know, the sort of imperialism and colonialism that was coming in and, and supplanting Islamic cultures. And in reaction, there was a desire to create, oh. you know, Islamic states. Um, so could we call the Muslim Brotherhood an Islamist movement? I would think so, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay, very helpful. And, and then the Muslim Brotherhood itself has, has broken into factions, yes. some that promote violence and some that reject violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful, thank you. Parallels with Judaism are just remarkable. With our bre this brethren. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. <clears throat> I, think, I think when you... Um, when we dive deeply into the story of Ibrahim, Abraham, it, I mean, it goes all the way back. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Christianity, very early on, it, it, each of these traditions wants to form a community that has its spiritual principles and values as the central organizing principle of that new community. And so you see, of course, um, Early Israelite religion moving into becoming Judaism, you know, it's it's it does establish in a sense a state, a people, a nation. You know, um, Christianity very quickly does the same thing. Um, in reaction to the Roman Empire, it establishes a new state, not state perhaps at this point, um, because they're living under the conditions of the Roman Empire. It establishes a form of community that that is communal, um, where th there are guidelines for how the community is organized. Property, uh, you give up individual property rights. Property is held in common and shared according to need within the life of the community. So these are the guidelines set up for Christian community in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. So there is an organizing principle for communal life, and you can call that political in the sense of polis or you know community. The, um, and then, of course, very soon in its early life, Christianity merges with empire with Rome and it does itself become a political force. So we all have histories of, you know, uh, our, our relationships with, with government and politics that, that get murky. Well then, was the Crusades in a way a reaction like what is happening in ISIS now? The Crus you know, the Crusades again are complicated, but that, it really grows out of the clash between Christian and Islamic empires, and who holds claim to the Holy Land, you know, to, to Jerusalem. And so uh, the Christians wanted to reclaim Jerusalem from the infidel, from the Muslims. And so it's a, it, it does become political battling over property. 
and I'll, I'll add briefly that uh, whereas Islam and Christianity gained the reins of political power and imperial power, the Jews did not for a very, very long time. Uh, on, uh, the, last time the last time that the Jews had complete sovereignty was in the time of the Maccabean Revolt, which we're celebrating at Hanukkah. And it ended badly. The Maccabees, the Hasmonean House, who then took over the monarchy of Israel, an independent monarchy for the first time in a long time, rapidly became an incredibly corrupt and hated monarchy in the Jewish world. Um, and uh, it's an interesting story, the sort of the, the, shall we call it, the shadow side of the Hanukkah story. Um, then what we're observing in the 20th century, in the Jews' utterly miraculous reclaiming of national sovereignty after close to 2,000 years, is um, uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a human law, and so nobody's immune. And we have to be working against it all the time. So, so on the one hand, Judaism offers... One of the things I love about Judaism is that we had 19 centuries to, and longer to develop a critique of political power. It's embedded in our teachings. That doesn't mean that the people who then get the power, once we finally have it, are going to listen to that critique. But I can, but it does put me as a Jewish teacher in a position to say, Judaism teaches this about the capacity of power to corrupt and the need to have checks against it. But that doesn't mean we're going to be any better at avoiding, at avoiding that, uh, the corruption of power than anybody else. Well, good, good uh, uh, intro questions, but let's, let's not forget to begin with just a little silence and breathing. Um, and I think I'll open us with a, a poem from a Christian mystic. Um, so first, let's just bring our attention to our breath. Early Christian contemplative practice worked with the force that the tradition calls attention. And to get a little taste of that, you can see what it means to move attention through your body. Try moving your attention or your awareness into the soles of your feet until maybe they sort of tingle and come alive. And you go, oh, they're my feet. They're filled with attention, awareness sensation. And now try moving that same force of attention up into the palms of your hand until you feel presence, aliveness in your hands. So the early Christian practice was actually to take this force of attention and to cultivate it in the heart center. And you see this again and again in the writings of Christian mystics and saints, uh, that the work of the spiritual journey is the work of drawing the mind into the heart. And so try, 
shifting that energy of attention into your chest. And you might use your breath as an anchor for holding awareness in your chest, in your heart center. And as you breathe through your heart, see if you can notice the qualities, the energies that have been traditionally associated with this center. Qualities like warmth, gentleness, mercy, sweetness, and of course, love. And allow your attention held in your heart to kindle those qualities and breathe through them. These words are from St. Theophan the Recluse. You must descend from your head into your heart. At presence, your thoughts of God are in your head. And God is, as it were, outside you. And so your prayer and other spiritual exercises remain exterior. Whilst you are still in your head, thoughts will not easily be subdued, but will always be whirling about like snow in winter or clouds of mosquitoes in summer. <laughs> and so the call is to drop out of the busy swirl of the mind into the heart and into the body and find that deep center and stillness there. and the warmth and the fire there. <coughs> so I invite you to hold on to that heart quality as we uh, engage in conversation and questions and words, uh, and to remember that that is always more essential. That what we do with our minds is good and important, and our minds often need to be satisfied before uh, sometimes our mind is the gatekeeper of the heart and until the mind feels safe it won't allow you to drop into the heart so we need to do the mental work but it's always in service of the heart work so you can open your eyes as you're ready <coughs> So any, any thoughts before we jump in on how it felt? Yeah, Jay. Yeah, it, it was very Buddhist-like. Mm. In fact, the message is, could have been from Buddha. So what's the connection 
between. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so of course, contemplative traditions are all about inner work and inner transformation, and and, and as. The structure of the human being is apparently fairly universal, then the practices that work on the human being, they crop up, pop up perennially across traditions and cultures. Um, the Christian tradition, and I think Judaism and, um, and Islam in their own mystical traditions, uh, tends towards a very warm, heart-centered approach, uh, which in some forms of Buddhism, it's a little cooler. In Zen, you might think of a, a little cooler approach and the language tends to be around mindfulness. In Buddhist practice, mindfulness is not about being stuck in your head. Mind is bigger, it's big mind. But in the West, we tend to hear mind and it sticks us in our heads. Uh, Christian practice frames itself more in terms of heartfulness. And you see there's a long heart-centered contemplative tradition of drawing the mind into the heart and cultivating that more sort of heart-centered embodied awareness. Um, but, there's certainly heartfulness in Buddhism too. So the traditions, they, they, they all meet somewhere, I think, there. Right, it probably um, cuts across all religions, in fact, because the, the, the operative word was really attention. Attention, so, you know, right, to work with, the with awareness. And the hand and then, then mm -hmm. the heart. It, and mm -hmm. and Go ahead, mindfulness is, is all about attention. Right, right. To the, to the moment. Right, and mindfulness includes full body awareness, of course, yeah. It should come actually as no surprise that seeking human beings uh, as a species, we have, uh, we have many channels we're tuned to, and uh, that seekers would pay attention to this and discover this through the medium of their own cultural discourse. So different traditions express it somewhat differently. But the seeking that human beings do is the seeking that we do. And so there's no surprise that it would come up in many, many different cultures that paying attention to your insides in a particular way produces <coughs> results and insights that you want to d try to reproduce and describe to other people. I, I do think there's something unique, perhaps, in the Abrahamic family of contemplative traditions um, in regards to embodiment and heart-centeredness. Uh, you see in certain forms of, say, Vedanta, uh, uh, Hindu schools of spirituality that work with, say, the chakra system, and often the goal in those, they're these spiritual energy centers that run along, you know, the, the, the spine, and the goal is actually you want to raise the energy up, up, and up, up to the, the highest crown chakra and out. Um, so the goal is sort of up and out, and it can lead in certain cases to a kind of disembodied spirituality. Um, that's not the case, of course, in all forms of Hinduism or Indian spirituality, but that sort of up and out direction is different from this sort of down and in to the heart. And I think that the Abrahamic traditions at their best, there's a real um, appreciation of embodiment and, you know, that, that the world is, is good, is created by the divine, um, is meant to be dove into, um, not escaped from, and so it makes sense that awareness to draw it into the heart and body uh, has a certain resonance in that family of traditions. And um, Christianity, the core doctrine, the incarnation of God, this idea that, that God enters into humanity, physicality, into the world. Um, so it's not get up and out of the world to God, it's about God pouring down and into the world through us. So it's a, you know, what's your metaphysical roadmap? 
which direction is it flowing in? Yeah. I think the devotional chanting brings you into your heart. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. So yeah. in Hinduism, they have that. Right, bhakti tradition in Hinduism, yeah. right. A lot of heart-centeredness there. Yeah, I also wanted to add, uh, as far as Buddhism goes, that the um, development of compassion yeah. is absolutely key to all forms of Buddhist practice. Right. And as far as I'm concerned, that's very much about the heart. Right, and me meta me meditation, yeah. loving kindness meditation, yeah. very heart-centered. Yeah. Different uh, language. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm very wary of generalizations. Yeah, yeah. It's, because it's never every, good to every say. rule will have it, uh, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm with you. Right. Never good to say this tradition does this and that tradition does that because every tradition is, is chloroform. It's not, you know, monolithic. It's right. The analogy, I've, I, an, an analogy I like <laughs> is thinking about 88 keys on the piano and all the chord possibilities and how some traditions play these chords more and some play these chords, but the, they all, they're all playing the whole keyboard. That's the way I, I like to think about it. In some Sufi traditions, there is a whole system of chakras called the latayif. The, really? And, and you do certain practices in, and again, I think many of them were influenced by the, um, by the Indian, by Hinduism, and um, probably it's a, less Buddhism, It's important to know how much... Indian influence comes through Islam and then also into Judaism. And Buddhism. And right. Buddhism, which goes to... Which, which is Indian, Indian, right. So, uh, you know, that really is probably the core of uh, everything we're talking about. I wouldn't make that statement. No? I would say there's been a lot of influence in all directions. I think that would be a fairer thing to say. The Silk Route, the Silk Route ran both ways. Right? The Silk Route ran both from the east bringing influence to the west, and from the west bringing influence to the east. I think it was more of a discourse. I don't think we can claim uh, a uh, one tradition being the root. I, I, don't, I think that would be specious on our part. And because wisdom is universal and springs up where it will, we, we often have a tendency to think that all good things must come from Hinduism and Buddhism, <laughs> you know, and then there's a, a, a leaning towards that, and I see it often in Christians who go, well, Jesus, his teachings are so good, they must have come from the East. He must have spent time in India or in Tibet, which actually, I think there's a kind of almost anti-Semitic bias in that, that he couldn't have got this good stuff from Judaism, um, whereas point. every teaching of Jesus has some precedent in his own Jewish soil, um, and so... So while there can be influence across traditions, wisdom springs up where it will also, you know? That's from the psalm. Wisdom springs out of the earth and truth and hex. I forget. I'll look up the psalm. Would you say that Christianity came from Judaism? Oh, yeah. Christianity is born out of Judaism. Hinduism. Right. But Hinduism and Judaism also had their... They all had their predecessors. Right. And early Israelite religion had Babylonian influences, and you know, it's all... Right, Judaism came from somewhere, too. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to get, wondering about. I'm yes, wondering. It's, good, it's a good thing to wonder about. We don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know if there was some Adam and Eve uh, <laughs> moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to think not, but... Uh, Karuna, did you finish with the, the subtle oh, centers? And and I just wanted to point, point that out. It's a, it's a very um, interesting 
um, system. And I, I, and I do think there is this kind of working up to the crown. So there, you know, there is that a aspect. But um, Islam, in particular, has this real um, uh, embodiment is extremely important in the uh, the daily practices of Islam. The Islamic prayer is all about embodiment, and much of Sufi zikr, much of um, much of the things that you do. Um, on a daily basis is a real praxis. And I think it shares that with Judaism. You know, there's Absolutely. a there's a way of washing your hands before prayer. There's there's a way of stepping into a mosque. It's there's it's very conscious of the body and um, not particularly ascetic. Um, well, there's certainly a strong ascetic core in Sufism, but not in terms of like it's you know, it's seen as a good thing to be married. It's seen as you know, a positive thing to be in a body. Um, and then you, then you transcend. Right. <laughs> then then you transcend. You, you, transcend, you transcend. And then if you have, a, if you have an, a, a worldview that separates the spirit and the flesh, which is something that can become very problematic because in our desire to have a binary and solutions to things and have things be good and bad, you then assign the spirit good, flesh bad. Mm -hmm. And that leads to all kinds of right. horrors. Uh, so, but it's very hard to generalize about one tradition versus another. Uh, it's fun to study them, though. I mean, that's what we're doing. So, Matthew. Uh, so, so the one thing I wanted to do before we dive into maybe more practices or poetry or whatever people brought, um, I've had a few questions from people after class about belief systems, and um, some people said, well, I still don't really get what Muslims believe or what Christians believe. Um, I hear, you know, yeah, social justice, yeah, one God, but, but you know, what's unique about the, the theology? And so I wanted to just do a little check off on a couple of the sort of, you know, Christian elephants in the room when it comes to doctrine. And it's certainly true that at the level of social justice teachings, there's really no separation across these three traditions. They all have explicit teachings about caring for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, for the oppressed. Um, you hear that again and again. So at that point, that they meet. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, there is one divine source. At that point, they meet. And the two sort of big sticking points in the Christian tradition are these notions of the Trinity and the incarnation of, of God becoming human in Jesus. And so I thought it might be helpful just to kind of break those open really quickly. And was that a, no, that was someone knitting, I think. I thought I saw a hand. <laughs> um, and I found a quotation from an Episcopal priest named Barbara Brown Taylor. And she writes about this doctrine of the incarnation in, in Christian tradition. And she's saying this is a sort of new insight for herself, but it's really an ancient insight. She writes, When I was first taught the concept of incarnation, of, of God made flesh, I was taught to capitalize it, capital I. The incarnation happened just once in one person a very long time ago. In Jesus alone was God's word made flesh. As his follower, my job was to trust that was true and persuade others that it was true as well. The incarnation was presented to me as an article of faith. 
It was a unique event that involved Jesus and no one else, and the fate of my own flesh depended on the acceptance of that fact. Relatively late in life, I have decided that incarnation is less a doctrine than a practice, which Jesus did not come to do once and for all, but to show any who were willing how God's word might become flesh in their lives too. Um, So this is actually an ancient understanding within the Christian tradition of what the doctrine of the incarnation means. And we looked at a quotation from the 14th century mystic Meister Eckhart last uh, week where he said, we are all meant to be mothers of God, for God is always needing to be born. This idea that we're all to incarnate God uh, within the stuff of our own lives. And you see this in the writings of the New Testament, um, this idea that God has entered into this human life of Jesus. It's not a one-off, but the incarnation continues unfolding through the followers of Jesus. Um, And so the tradition talks about the mystical body of Christ. So in Christian tradition, Christ isn't this single person, Jesus. Christ is an unfolding mystical body that includes all of the faithful who are doing the work of incarnating God. Uh, so, So Christians understand themselves to be the ongoing incarnation of God. Uh, That's the work, that we're to continue embodying God in the world. Um, So I wanted to kind of break that that notion open of what it means, and I think there's a point there where it can actually, that could be celebrated across traditions, this work of, yeah, Jonathan. I I want to say something about this. So I would generalize, and I think I would stand by this generalization, that... Uh, in our human makeup, there's the part of us that wants an event to be reified, to have happened, right? Mount Sinai, we received the Torah. And if you look at some Jewish websites, they will put the date that it happened, which they have calculated by however they calculated it, (laughs) right? The date that it happened. Um, And that's when we received the Torah. And parallel and completely as present as that in the Jewish tradition is the idea that any time you are in the, having an insight or a spiritual uh, aha, or you're standing at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. So that Mount Sinai is here and now. So it's almost the difference between historical, um, historical referencing and the referencing of sacred story, which is to say that, for example, incarnating that, 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 that uh, woman, what was her name? Barbara Brown Taylor. Barbara Brown Taylor grew up having that idea of incarnation as an historical moment that she had to celebrate and venerate and defend. And then as she grew and changed, she started to not understand it as an historical moment of incarnation, but as an ex, as as a um, uh, an inner experience mm-hmm. of incarnation. So the same in Judaism. Um, the rabbis talk about the world to come, and if we do good deeds in this world, we inherit and merit getting to be in the world to come, and uh, as if it's some destination that we'll get to if we're good enough. 
And at the same time, there's a tradition that the world to come, especially in Jewish mystical literature, is something that is happening all the time. And they say the world that is coming, that is constantly coming. And that, so where's the kingdom of heaven in Christian talk? Is the kingdom of heaven in the hereafter? Or is this the kingdom of heaven when we realize we're sitting in the kingdom of heaven? And this becomes the balancing back and forth that uh, mystical traditions are always trying to revive the presence right. of it all. Right. And the whole idea of death, you know, whether it's a literal death or a death of the ego. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Right. Uh, so, uh, and we operate on both those levels. And mm -hmm. uh, um, again, as I've said many times, is, is that I want to be operating on all pistons. <laughs> right? I don't want half my engine sort of smacking on the other half. I want, to be, I want the kingdom of heaven to know that I can experience it right now, and I'm interested in the history of how that term developed and where it came from. So I see no conflict, personally, in being intellectually totally fascinated with all of this history, but knowing that, for me, the reason I'm interested is because of how it feeds my spirit right at this moment. Michael, would you use this microphone? Sure. I've been fascinated for a long time by the three parts of the Musaf in Rosh Hashanah's service. The first is called Mahriyot, usually translated as kingship. The second is called Sikhonot, remembrances. And the third is called Shofrot, the sound of the Shofrot. The reason I bring that up is because we're talking about the, the world, we're talking about Mahriyot is this world of temporal referencing. You read the newspaper, it tells you what's happening in the kingdom. When the chauffeur blows, we drop everything and we enter into the moment of happiness <coughs> right here. But what's in between? What's in between is remembrance. The various practices that we do to remember heaven, or if we're stuck in heaven, to remember the earth. Oh, thank you. So that we can bridge that <laughs> constant. And it's integration from shall both we call directions. It, shall we call it for... For, as in one way, head and heart, mm -hmm. you know, and having them be working together. All the different ways we want to we wanna transcend the sense of polarity in our lives and instead embrace it all and understand that they, 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 they're a unity for us. And all mystical traditions are spiritual revival movements trying to resuscitate and revitalize that living heart that, le that leads us to want to uh, be close to God. So to add one more step to that, we've just spoken of the hay, the vav, and the hay of the holy name. The bottom hay, of course, is Mahriyot, the middle hay is remembrances, and the top hay is the kingdom of the shofar. But the mystery of God is beyond them, it's the point in the yud. Yes, I'll tell you more about what he's talking about <laughs> later. <laughs> um, I'll do. Yeah. Thanks. Go ahead. Well, so much, so much was started in that. I'm just trying to find where to, where to even start. But the, the kingdom of God language, certainly in Christianity, it's often interpreted as the place you go when you die. But Jesus is explicit again, in his, again and again in his teachings. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. Um, you know, there's a here and now component. In the Quran, um, uh, paradise... It, the, there's a verse that says, for those with taqwa, with God consciousness, the garden is brought near. So again, not just when you die, but it's brought 
near now. Um, so I think all the traditions see that, you know, this is something we're bringing in. Uh, and Christian teaching, very early on, this incarnational teaching developed in the mystical tradition uh, through some words from St. Athanasius. So he's writing in the 300s. And he says that in Jesus, God became human in order that humanity might become God. Um, that, that God became human, that humanity might become divine. And so it's seen as a, you know, a process of exchange, and it develops, this becomes the sort of linchpin of Christian mystical teaching, and it develops through a doctrine called theosis, which can also be translated divinization, so the, the godification, the divinization of the human person, that this is the whole point, that Jesus... Um, he shows what it is to incarnate God in a human life, and he plants that possibility in the life of the planet so that humanity might also become God, become divinized. Divinized yeah. as in fully self-realized of our... Right. Of this divine nature. human union. And I think also that the experience of that has led, especially in Islam, to all sorts of accusations of heresy. Um, you know, there's a, a very famous martyr who actually was um, uh, was killed because he said, "An al haq I am truth," uh, which is a, one of the divine, one of the most powerful um, attributes of God. The, uh, I am truth, and so this this um, ability to totally identify with presence, to lose yourself in presence, caused many Sufis, and I'm sure that there are parallels in the oh, yes. both traditions, oh, yeah, yeah. to completely submerge their own identity in the identity of, of God. And so there, there was this, um, and so an outrage people. And they got, they, they, that outraged people, you're, you're Yes, it, was, it, it, it outraged the people, their, their, uh, they're the people who are listening to them. You know, you're in this ecstatic state where there is no separation between yourself and divinity. You uh, you make an utterance, and one of them, I forget what was it, but Bastani. One of them said to his followers, they told him what he had said afterwards, and one of and they, and he said he said. If I say that again, you know, strike me, kill me. Kill me, and, yeah. And, and, the, and the, the, um, the, the blows fell to the side. They reverberated on the people who were trying to hurt him. Oh, in the story. In because the story. he, he oh. acknowledged yes. the heresy yes. of such statements, yes. but they were being uttered while he was yes. totally lost. And he yes. said, well, if I say it again, strike me. Yes. And they tried to, and the sword bounced back. Yes, and, and to, the, to the detriment of the people <laughs> but, who were trying to kill him. So that raises the question of why is that a heresy? In, in, in Christianity and, and, and in Islam and in Judaism? Why would it be a heresy to say, I am God? Uh, our, 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 we, we believe we have to preserve this eternal distinction between creature, created and creator. You know, the orthodox sort of strands like to, like to keep a clear distinction, and the mystical strands are always blurring the distinction. That's true. I, I think that the correct answer to that problem is not to say, I am God, but God is I. Then you, then you God step, is you I. Step out of the heresy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you put God at first. Because Rev Zalman used to like to say, you know, he wakes up in the morning and says, okay, God, I'm going to give you a good ride at Zalman today. <laughs> right, right. Rev Zalman, would say, Rev Zalman would start each day, okay, God, here I am. I'm, 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 I'm going to give you a good ride at Zalman. That's right. He's one of our blessed teachers. Um, uh, Susan and then Amy. Um, um, well, in Hinduism, 
they're very clear about the, I hate to say, goal of, of transcending the ego in order to achieve this, whatever you want to call it, cosmic consciousness or yes. oneness. Uh, and I think ultimately every religion has that at their core. Uh, I think we've kind of lost this, um, this basic similarity of all of the religions have this, I think it's the core of wanting to transcend the little ego and, and unite with some more um, cosmic awareness, whatever you want to call it. This is a debate even within the philosophical schools of Hinduism, though, and there's disagreement. So there are the dividists, the dualists, who maintain there is an eternal separation between the divine and the soul. In Hinduism, there are? Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a huge sort of argument. They're the Vishishtadvaitists who think, who have a qualified non-dualism, that sort of God is in me, I am in God. There's some interpenetration, but some oh, distinction. Boy. And then the Advaitists, the non-dualists, who say that ultimately it's that total unity. But the schools argue amongst themselves. And so, for example, if you know the Hare Krishnas, they actually um, are dualists. They believe that there is an eternal distinction. Then you turn to like the Ramakrishna tradition, and they're non-dualists that you know ultimately. But they they all argue amongst themselves well, about what I, the. I guess I didn't yeah. know that. I, I was wow. More about the wow. 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 Matthew, how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I was watching TV. I don't know. <laughs> um, Amy. Yeah, I, 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 maybe I'm putting it too simply, but let me just see if I can articulate something. Christianity, from what you've said, Matthew, um, you know, Jesus is embodied God. Right. Okay. Um, Judaism, the, the Torah is the word of God. Right. Come down to yes. Sinai. And Mohammed articulated the, the, the thoughts of God, or was he, he also the embodiment of God? No, he was not the, the embodiment of God. That's a very big um, her, heresy in Islam. Um, uh, in, but he was the insan kamil, the perfect human, human. He was a perfect manifestation, especially in Sufism, of a human being. And the, I think that we have both in Islam, actually, because the Quran is the word of God as channeled through Muhammad. Right. And so you have, the, you have both that, the text um, and it, the text in it. It, it, it's, it can be in a very large cosmic sense, not just the, the written text, but the, all of creation is the text of the Quran in, in some readings of of, of it, <clears throat> but then there's also the the example, the the Sunnah, the way of Muhammad. So it's kind of both. Okay. Um, but it, but I would I don't think anyone would say that um, Muhammad was, and it's very clear in the Quran. You know they 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 talk very specifically about that God has no offspring, mm -hmm. God has no sons or daughters. Um, and you know, in many places in the Quran, that's, a, interesting. that's this, interesting. This is one of the sort of points of, of tension again. So Christianity develops this language of Jesus as 
the the only begotten son of God and God incarnate even. Um, and in Islam, it's seen as total yeah. heresy to say those kinds of things. You said there's a even um, Surah Al-Ikhlas, um, uh, Huhu Allahu Ahad Al-Husamad, Lam Yulid Wa Lam Yulad, they're at neither begotten nor begetting. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foundational text of Islam. Um, I pretty much understood that. Yeah. Yeah, that was very close to the <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's basically like God is not in human form. Is that an accurate interpretation of what you just said? That God is not. There, there, in a lot of the language around, about God, there is a certain, certain, certain kind of transcendence, particularly in the Sufi, the mystical texts, there's a certain kind of um, very tra transcendence that, um, where there's this, always this tension between form and between a, a being and not being. Right. And, and... Um, so God is not being. Or... This is not being, you know. There's that sense of form is not being, and the God is is beyond any sort of form. But because of this whole idea of needing to be seen, of needing to create, that this is the result of. May I, may I, one of the blessings of mystical streams of thought is it does away with duality, and we can so quickly get caught in the dualistic thinking. Well, is the son of God or not? Yeah. Does God beget children or not? And we can either have a conference that lasts 40 years yeah. or we can fight each other to the death over it. Yeah. Right? And his, this is history, right? Okay. The history of debating over the nature of God and then killing each other about it or trying... Hold on, it's happened plenty. That's, I mean, one of the things we're doing here is, is acknowledging that, that there have been disputations that not necessarily resulted in killing, but certainly in who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. And uh, for me, one of the blessings of mystical traditions is that they acknowledge that we are manifestations of the divine, that it is a continuum of energy that is beyond description that somehow manifests as this world. Mm -hmm. And that transcends the duality of um, theological disputations about which is which. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, yeah. Um, so partly why we call this class the mystical heart of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism is because if we were going to debate or even just learn about the different theologies, I've actually lost interest in that. Yeah. I personally, I don't want to teach that. I took those classes in college and graduate school, and okay. You know, that's, that's how, and so that's not, that's just not where my, where, where I'm jazzed. Um, so I'm interested in the mystical heart of the traditions, which transcend these centuries and centuries of debate, where we want to pin it down, we want a schematic, and um, we can do that, but to what end? Uh, we've then, we've then general, oh, we, so that's my question. Uh, and that's certainly not our goal in this class. L there's a lot of people who want to speak, so raise your hand so I can see. Uh, Rich has had his hand up for a long time, I know, and then we'll get everybody else's comments. So the centuries of debate I'm believing is centered around more fundamentalist views 
Mm, fundamentalist isn't the right word, would you or say? Conservative or orthodox um, I think it's, I mean, I think you can't really generalize. I mean, there are certainly debates among even the mystics um, in, right. in Islam. I, I don't know that much about the others, but we're debating each other. Um, I guess what I want to clarify, and you can help me with this, is that fundamentalism is a distinctly modern term okay. that is the product of modernity. All right, so um, and fundamentalism is a reaction to secular modernism. And so how do we characterize what was before modernity in a way that, that makes sense? That's, my, that's an issue that I have when we try to use this language. Maybe, so maybe traditional or orthodox is a better term. Orthodox might be a better word. Yeah. Or, or, Most of the, the it, Christians and Catholics I specifically that I've known over the years have this very distinct view of Jesus as the incarnation right. and that um, when they, they die, they will go to heaven. Right. And in, in orthodox Judaism, you're waiting for the Mashiach to come, and then we'll have paradise on earth. So, and, and I know less about Islam. I, I, I think the, I think the um, one of the um, distinctions too, I think in Islam is there's the kind of legalistic and more uh, and orthodox is another good word versus the mystical mm -hmm. tradition, and that's probably true of all of them. I yes, know it most is. about it Islam. Is. It is. Uh, and, I, go ahead, Matthew. Well, there, there are there are points in which the the what seem like apparent divisions start falling away as you sort of you know pick at and play with the language. And I, I'm thinking of uh, I can't think of the the great Sufi who said this. It might have been Ibn Arabi, but he says of of the Christians who say that that Jesus is God. He says the problem isn't that they say. Christ is God, but that they do not, or the problem is not that they say God is Christ, but that they do not say God is Christ and the entire universe. And it's, it's the limiting God within one form. So the Quran has a line that says, wheresoever you turn, there is the face of God. So there's a line from um, a, teach, a story of Rumi where he's arguing with a Christian who's saying that God is incarnate uh, in Jesus, and he says, what is there to incarnate? Like it's all already here, you know? And so, um, but again, that's arguing with this idea of incarnation as this box, this one-time event, whereas there's a stream in the mystical tradition that sees incarnation as bigger. And when you sort of break out of that, the, the two streams kind of end up saying very similar things. Um, the, the same thing with the Trinity. So there are schools of thought within Christianity that really see Trinity as a mystical experience and that trace it to the experience of the early followers of Jesus who knew God as transcendent, as source, as father, and then they encounter God in a human life, God among us, God in the other, and then that goes on unfolding through the mystical body of Christ, they're experiencing God in humanity, and then they have on Pentecost in the Christian story, the disciples have this experience of God as fire, as wind, as this power within them. St. Paul says God has been God, the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Um, and so there's this sort of tripartite experience of God as beyond us, God as among us, and God as within us. And so it's these, these different dimensions of the divine human relationship, beyond, among, within. And that that gets framed, that mystical experience gets framed as the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is constantly revealing God's self eternally in these three ways. Um, 
when you frame it as, as experience, then in Judaism you can say, well, where's our experience of God among us and beyond us and within us? Or in Islam. But if a Christian goes, well, where's God the Son in your tradition? And where's, you know, <laughs> then you're speaking at the language of doctrinal formulation rather than mystical experience. Um, and so uh, there, there are lines in the Quran, it's been acknowledged for a long time that when the Quran rejects Trinitarian language, it never actually rejects an Orthodox Christian notion of the Trinity. Um, I, I put some of the verses down here. So this is Quranic verses. Quranic verses. <laughs> Those people who say that God is the third of three are defying the truth. There is only one God. An Orthodox Christian would never say that God is the third of three. The three being the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Right, that God is the third of three. Rather, it would say there is a threeness or a manyness, a dynamism within God, not that God is the third among two others. And so it's, it's a, you know, different framing there. Um, there's an, another verse where it says, When God says, Jesus, Son of Mary, did you say to people, Take me and my mother as two gods alongside God? He will say, May you be exalted. I would never say this. But again, Orthodox Christianity doesn't say that Jesus and Mary are gods alongside God. So what the Quran is trying to do, it's trying to preserve, it's trying to say that God is the whole and not a part. You can't have God as the third in a list of other items. God includes, you know, the whole. God isn't a piece within the whole. Um, and to say God is the third in a series would be heretical. But it would also be heretical for Christians who aren't saying that. So once you start breaking down what one tradition is countering and what another tradition is affirming, you can see that often they're talking sort of over and under each other. That what one rejecting is rejecting isn't what the other is affirming. And so then you can start renegotiating doctrinal boundaries. You know, there's perhaps more room than you originally had imagined. Yeah, I had, a, I had a, an experience actually when I was traveling in India where I real uh, and you know and, and my first reaction to some of the Hindu practices was kind of I was a little off off putting, but I had this insight that what they they were manifesting the attributes of of God, and so I, I think the you know the ninety nine names the ninety nine most beautiful names they were breaking down, and you know that and that that was what their day that was what Hindu deities were about mm -hmm. was not that they're that God was not a, a unified being, but that, but that, but that as human beings, to know God's different attributes is just a, it's a human need. And so, in a way, you know, my interpretation of what Matthew is saying is this is a way of knowing God in in a, in in those different ways the 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 three layered ways and you know islam's you know i mean you have experiences people talk about the experiences of knowing god is in the majestic form knowing god in the in the in the form of beauty knowing god is truth you know all, these are all names and attributes of god that um are experienced quite differently mm -hmm. um uh, in different mystical, um, they call them a, a wall or halls, um, different mystical experiences. Halls? Um, you're like H A L states. 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 Uh, different mystical states, people mm -hmm. have very different... But like halls, like spaces that no. you No. Oh, halls no. is the word. Halls is the word. Okay. It, Not it's, an a, it's an Arabic word um, 
that um, talk and talk about the different the, the different um, states that a, a mystic would have and. People writing about these experiences write very differently about their experience of God in the majestic form and God in the beautiful form. Um, and, it, and in fact, there are, there are Sufi doc doctrines and even some hadith of Muhammad where God is experienced as a human being. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's ironic. There, is some, there are certain ironies in... But, right, the, but it's never... God is never a part. God is the whole. Yes. If, if God, if a human becomes so transparent that the divine shines fully through that life, it's not that now this is a God beside God. There's right. still just the one. And what Islam works to reject is any notion that there is a partner with the one. And Muhammad brought his message within the context of polytheistic Arabia. Um, and so a lot of the language from Judaism and Christianity would not translate well into the polytheistic context. So, so Judaism had the language of begetting as well. Um, the Psalms say of David, today I declare, this day I have begotten you, this day you are my son. So that begetting language was straight out of Judaism, carried over into Christianity. God says of Jesus, um, you are my begotten. And then it develops philosophically to talk about, like in the Zohar and in Christian mysticism, <coughs> eternal divine emanations. It's no longer a biological metaphor, but God is begetting the qualities of God. Christianity says that the eternal word of God, this member, person of the Trinity, is eternally begotten, eternally de generated. So it's not actually a literal, biological, sexual metaphor anymore. You know, that's not what it's talking about, something else. Um, in a polytheistic context, you bring in language of begetting, and it sounds very different. So in polytheistic Arabia, there were traditions that Allah, the one high God, had begotten, sort of in a quasi-physical way, lesser deities that were the children of God. And so the Quran rejects that language in its cultural context, which actually the language means something else in the Jewish and Christian context. So again, what it rejects isn't necessarily what the other tradition affirms. Well, wow, but that in early Judaism, obviously the idea of uh, defeating idol worship because is, and polytheism, but by the time of by the time that uh, Muhammad comes on the scene, that's uh, that's long. Uh, uh, that argument is ancient, and um, idolatry doesn't mean what it used to mean in Judaism. I believe by that time, uh, let's see, sixth century. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they've spirit, they they metaphorized that that to a degree. Anyhow, uh, yes. I've come to really appreciate all these different positions and ways of prayer and um, ways of seeing, you know, rather than, like you, I, I'm bored with like the intellectual, I think there needs to be an intellectual kind of understanding, I think in a general sense, but to spend a lifetime kind of disputing one mm -hmm. in order to claim one's own as the religion, you know, is boring to me. But what I, what I appreciate- And it's immature religion. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I appreciate all the different ways that people pray and, and how they connect to whether God is within or above or, because 
What I've come to understand is how people pray and which culture they're born into is very specific for the um, evolving of their own soul. So, for example, in my own journey as a spiritual person, I was raised Greek Orthodox, and then I became complete atheist. And then my first kind of stepping into, very slowly, was through Buddhism. Because I was not interested in devotion. I was not interested in much ritual, do you know? Like I just needed, give me the basics. Just give me the most basic thing that I know is real, and that's my breath. <laughs> I know my breath is real, and I know to be present is the greatest gift that I can give another, and for myself. That's why they call it the present, as that joke goes. Right. <laughs> so that was kind of like the, one, of, one of the growths in my evolution as a human and my spirituality, now I'm a Sufi, and, and I'm not saying that Buddhism is below Sufism, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying that it's so amazing that we have all this, all this is around us, mm -hmm. and every culture and every person is kind of migrating and moving through all this, all going to the same place, yeah. one truth. Thank you, thank you for saying that. Uh, uh, let me share briefly and then I'll, I'll keep going. Um, We live in a moment in human history where uh, um, what uh, uh, said it, Woody Guthrie, or was it Peace in the World or the World in Pieces? Um, something like that. It's, it's an unprecedented moment when the barriers are dropping and we have this ability to explore and recognize the commonality in things. and. Um, uh, I'm glad. It's an important time, and so how do we drop our defenses and allow allow that kind of discourse to take place? That's what we're experimenting with here. So thank you. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, this is my perspective, that all humanity lives in time, and we don't even know what time is. And the God or the spiritual is outside of time. And all of religion is an attempt to understand that. Um, Sarah and I recently went to a, a program, a scientific program, where the telescope, and I don't remember a lot of the details, because it's not that bad. But it's looking back to the beginning of the universe mm -hmm. and some of the Boseman-Higgs particles that aren't matter, and they are matter, and, and it intersects with religion in such a, a fundamental, profound way, because it's a, an attempt to understand who we are. I mean, time doesn't even exist. There's the past, there's the future, and the present's in the middle somewhere. So that's religion in all its forms, to me, is just desperately trying to understand that we're born, and then we die, and nobody knows the hell why, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, and yet, in the midst of that inexorable journey from birth to death, there's every moment available to us to taste infinity. Right. Yeah, right. And that's, the paradox and the mystery of our existence. And yes, for me, tasting that infinity more and more and more is certainly why I engage in religious and spiritual practice. Yeah. That's right. 
Um, and and uh, the infinity tasting finitude more and more is why there's a world that continues to be. That's right. That's right. Um, Anne and Jay and Jeff, and then I'll look over at this half of the room. Yeah. Anne. And, um, and also you are here. Vivian. Vivian, right. Can you tell me uh, what the uh, creation story is in the Quran, if there is one? <laughs> Did you hear a question? Yeah. What's the creation story in the Quran? The creation is, well, there is not, the, the, there's a pre-creation story. Yeah. Um, that is, um, that is that Allah comes to the uncreated souls of everything in the world and, and, um, asks who, who will take up this burden of awareness, this taqwa, this awareness of God. And um, he comes to this, the, the seed, just as the, this is the seed before anything is manifest. And he, he comes and says, to the mountains, will you take it up? The mountains don't want any part of it. The animals, the birds, all of creation. And then he comes to the human being and says, will you, will you hold this awareness? Um, am I not your Lord? Um, will you hold this awareness of, of, of creator? Um, and um, the uh, human being in, in the, it, its incredible foolishness says, yes. <laughs> yes, we will be the, the witness. Bala Shahidna, we will witness. We will be the witness of this. Not one, a group. All of humanity. All of humanity. All the souls all, are drawn every, from the loins in this of Adam, room. it says. Everyone in this room has Human said... Human beingness. And has said, Bala Shahidna. We have all said, we will bear witness. And um, then the Quran says, <laughs> mankind was always rash and foolish. <laughs> uh -huh. That's... That is actually, uh, you know... That's uh, magnificent. Yes. yes. Um, the, it, the rabbis... Take a verse from Isaiah that says, as you are my witnesses, I am your God. And it appears in Isaiah to simply be a declaration. But the rabbis say, as, you can translate Hebrew pronouns in different ways, not pronouns, uh, prepositions. prepositions in different ways. If you are my witnesses, then I am God. And then they go on to say, that is, as it were, if you are not witnesses of the unity that everything springs from, then that unity does not exist at that moment. So that the presence of God in the world depends on our consciousness. This is, Does that make sense, everybody? And that's not an ancient mystical teaching. That's a, that, I mean, that's not a medieval teaching. That's an ancient rabbinic teaching. This is similar to, um, in Christian mystical uh, teaching, particularly in uh, the school of uh, the Rhineland mystics, um, German mystics like Meister Eckhart or Johannes Tauler. Uh, Eckhart makes a distinction. What century, roughly? Um, I guess this is all the way up into the 14th century. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so Eckhart makes a distinction between God and Godhead. And this is maybe the distinction between Ein Sof and, and you know... Um, so he, he says that, that God only exists in relation to creation. Mm -hmm. that, that, that Godhead is, is, is 
the ground that everything arises out of, but the, the dance of, of creation and, and God, or lover and beloved, that, that, it only exists in relation, so God only exists in relation to us. Um, and that when that duality is dissolved, then, then there's the Godhead, the ground. And uh, Eckhart even has this prayer where he says, I pray God, give me leave of God. So in, in Jewish mystical terms, this is the difference between the world of Bria and the world of Atsilut, that the Bria God is the God of creation, but there's a world beyond creation, which is called Atsilut, and it's where, you know, the rabbis play. It said, what was there before creation was in process to make sense of certain miracles in creation? And so they, there has to be this, trans, this beyond transcendent domain called Atsilut. Mm-hmm. By the way, Eckhart, Eckhart the, the current Eckhart Tolle, oh. claims somewhere that he was the prior Eckhart. Oh. <laughs> what, what I know of the earlier Eckhart's uh, writings and his current one's teachings, it makes good sense to me. It does. Wow. It does. The, um, so, <laughs> the Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart Tolle, some... Makes a claim that he's the spirit, the of the soul of Meister Eckhart. Wow! And if you, the little bit I know about Meister Eckhart's life is that he he managed to not to escape the hangman's noose by by a hair's breadth. When all the mystics would get to a certain point, and the church would come down and, and basically destroy them in their writings. He died just in time to not suffer that failure. He did have a papal bull issued against him and various things like that. He would be on heresy trial and he'd be cleared and, you know, back and forth. He, he, he was influenced greatly by a, 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 a woman named Marguerite Porite, who was a Beguine mystic, a French um, mystic. These women who formed sort of intentional women's communities. And she wrote this beautiful sort of non-dual Christian mysticism uh, one of her books is called The Mirror of Simple Souls, and she was burned uh, at the stake for heresy. Later, her book was falsely or incorrectly attributed to a, a male saint of the church, and it was stamped with an imprimatur as, as orthodox when it was a man writing it, but when it was her, she was killed for it. Wow. So, so in each case where there's this, where you're, you're risking your life to share... To speak these truths. To speak these truths. Why is that... How would you answer that that the um, the powers that be considered that a th- a threat? Um, because they did obviously. Powers that be. Powers that be. Oh, Angel just pointed out my language. The powers that be uh, want to keep being. Uh, so doesn't doesn't this happen? Doesn't this always happen that the the keepers of the outer courtyard are the ones who place the rules. Right. And the ones who wander away from that courtyard and begin to explore interior truths, right. they threaten the worldview of those who are in the external dimension. Right. It's a natural growth, but just as Jetta was saying before, people get uh, doctrine appropriate to the level of development. There, there are those who would say that those who are doing external religion have to do it for their current state of development, mm-hmm. and that the mystics are doing some other work. And beyond both of those domains, there's a domain of, of wisdom seeking, which tries to make sense of all the worlds. There's, there's a, we people. <laughs> there's another line from, back to the, the Quranic creation story. Karuna may remember the verse, I don't remember where it is, but God says that humanity was created from a single soul. Oh, yes. So we're all actually sparks or facets of one soul. 
um, the, the, the one human being in the Jewish mysticism. So in our comparison, heaven. that's taken, and I would say taken, not in a negative way, directly from the rabbinic tradition. Because in the Mishnah, the, one of the most famous sayings in the Mishnah is, it's in the context, and it's one of my most important Jewish sources. In the Mishnah, they're describing uh, what, in the Mishnah called Sanhedrin, which is jurisprudence, the laws of jurisprudence, they're describing how you're supposed to um, uh, exhort a witness in a capital case when they have life and death on their, uh, in their judgment, uh, a witness or, or a judge, and you have to say to them, remember that God created a single soul first, uh, so that, and then they list uh, several reasons. One is so that no one can say, my ancestor was greater than your ancestor. Mm-hmm. Two, so that you always remember that anyone who saves a single life saves an entire world. This is also in the Quran. Yeah, I know, and I'm saying this predates yeah, yeah. the Quran by several centuries, so it was part of the, that body that sort of moved into, that was, that was uh, adopted by, by uh, Muhammad and Islam, and that if you destroy a single life, you destroy an entire world. And finally they say, and look how magnificent the creator of the universe is. When a, when a king makes coins in their own image, every coin looks exactly the same. But when the Holy One, Blessed Be, creates human beings in divine image, each one is different. And I just love thinking about that. I just love, that's how, and that's the instruction of how to exhort a witness before they stand to testify in a trial. Isn't that beautiful? So, um, again, those stream, beautiful streams of thought are, are as present as any others in our tradition. One of the um, kind of cool things about the Quranic passage is that nafs, which is the word for soul, is gendered feminine. So the single soul is gendered feminine, and the and then later it, it goes on to say, and from out of the this single soul was created mates, and the mate, mates is masculine. Oh, beautiful! Zouch. Jay, you want to share something? Well, I was going to follow up. Um, probably a little out of context now, but when the lady said, um, we live and die, and what do we do in between? And, <laughs> and uh, Matthew's the beginning with the attention, and and um, York, and York keeps saying, uh, stay in the here and now, and Matthew is, you know, the, the meditation was in the here and now. I think the poets say it best. I mean, Mary Oliver says it, uh, Walt Whitman says it, but, um, T.S. Eliot says it best in a 15 lines, if I, if I may. Have you, do you know it? Yeah, I know it. Please, please. Loudly. So, and, and so again, you have to just put in the context of getting here and now. So T.S. Eliot, this is the last lines in his, um, in, in his work called The Four Quartets. And he says, quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. So again, quick. Wait, wait, okay, okay. Stop at the end so we can absorb it. Okay, do it again and then stop. Okay, but you gotta move quick. This is the key. I got it. I got it. But just quick now. 
here, right here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Vivian? Can I, can I finish part of that quote? There's more? Yeah. Why does it go from there? Several places. <coughs> and the fire and the rose are warm. Yeah. When, the, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown not of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. So the fire is the burning person who never arrives. He's always longing. And the rose is the one who's already perfected. And each of us contains both of those truths. And in the resolution of the final words of the four quartets, he says the fire and the rose are one. Beautiful. The fire and the rose are one. Sorry, that was a little hard to hear. I should have given you the mic. Um, in, in the Talmud, it says that this one particularly God-intoxicated in, in, rabbi, ben, ben Zoma, was sitting, and the, his colleagues saw this ring of fire around him. And uh, they just, they said to him, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm just stringing the words of Torah together into pearls. And uh, he's completely, but it's just that image of like, the, not the fire that consumes, but the fire that vivifies. I don't know, I just love it. What did you want to say, Matthew? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Did I? I oh. <laughs> but Vivian wanted to say Vivian. something. Um, yeah, I have a, a different kind of question altogether. Um, and it's about Islam. Um, millions of people through the ages have been followers of Islam. Microphone, please. Oh, good. Thank you, Rich. Yeah, I've, I've got a cold, so my... Yes, we totally understand. Impaired. That's why we have this. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm saying that millions of people over the centuries have been followers of Islam. And um, I'm still trying to understand the nature of Islam. Um, you mentioned that there's various practices, um, particular environments, and also there are um, social justice is a major belief. But I just still don't quite understand. I may, maybe it's going too far away from the mystical tradition. Uh, which is maybe a problem because we're Well, but Vivian, I have a question. Were you here in the class that we were describing the five pillars of Islam and... Uh, have you missed any yes, classes? Yes, no, I was there. Yeah. I was there. But, oh, okay. But it was still... Um, it was kind of, in some way, kind of theoretical. I just wanted to get a sense of what it is for people. What, what grabs people about Islam that makes them want now, to... Now, to pray. Follow <laughs> That's, that's one, one the Great. question. What the second question it deals with the mystical aspects of Islam. Is there a current within Islam that is not part of Sufism that is also mystical? Or does Sufism encompass all of the mystical tradition of Islam? That's a very good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to it. I mean, do you know of any well, non... And is Sufism a monolith or in any way that can be wrapped, that you can wrap? Right. Su Sufism, um, some would say that Sufism is the living heart of Islam, that it's the, the spiritual you know, blood that courses through the whole system. Um, the Sufi orders that develop in Sunni Islam are sort of mystical orders and lineages. But often, Su Sufism as a sort of 
way of understanding Islam will permeate whole Islamic cultures and societies so that you know the folk Islam lived in the village is just Sufic inherently you know um, in, in Sh Shia thought there aren't Sufi orders in the same way in a way the Shi tradition is just sort of permeated with mysticism mysticism yeah. sort of spills into the whole framework Whereas in the Sunni tradition, it spills into the orders, the Sufi orders. Yeah, and I think I think that would be the answer that Shia wouldn't, the Shia would not necessarily say that they were Suf, Suf, Sufic. I, and there are some um, Sufi orders in Shia countries, and there are some <coughs> Sufi, um, yeah, tarikas um, in Shia countries that are separate from the Sunni orders. But I, so that's probably the place where it it's most non if you want to call it non Sufi. Um. Imam Ali, the the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, he is seen as the, he's called the gate of knowledge, and he's seen as the sort of head of the Sufi silsilas. The chains of transmission flow from the Prophet, and almost all of them then flow directly through Ali, and so he's sort of the gate of mysticism. The whole Shia tradition flows through Ali because they see him as the rightful successor. So that whole tradition is sort of inherently mystical. And, and, and they have this whole theory of the six people after Ali coming, the six, some, some 12, um, the six Imams after Ali are spiritual leaders, mystical leaders, not so much political leaders. Some of them had political offices. Some of them, many of them were assassinated. Um, and uh, I, I can't give you the ins and outs of each one, but there is, that is a very inherently mystical tradition because the, the last imam is seen as being, he was so, somehow spirited away, he was occulted. Hidden. Um, hidden he's hidden and will come. Oh, I read about that. Will come into um, his own at, at the time of the uh, Mahdi, the time of the Messiah. Essentially, can I ask a related question here? So, would one community have a lot of different mosques that might represent these different strands, or is it this like Baptists and Presbyterians <laughs> and Lutherans all on or, the same street, or conservative synagogues? And you know, um, actually, so there are traditions where um, Sufis tend to meet in. Um, separate buildings in some uh, countries they're called tekes, dargas they tend to have their own things sometimes there's a mosque attached um, uh, mosques are I think mosques are more general they, I don't think they have the same like a, you know, there's not like the Presbyterian mosque and the, and the Methodist mosque down the street I think they're all pretty much standard and then the Sufis will gather to pray, to do their prayers in their teke. Sometimes they go to the mosques, but it's more, a little more fluid. Um, uh, not so much, there's not so much, of, there not so much many um, denominations. Right, there aren't the rigid denominational structures of like yeah. reform and reconstructionist yeah. and conservative yeah. or Lutheran Catholic, you know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. More generic, or pre, or before that, the 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 um, the, the wagon, um, the balagala, uh, the the um, the guys who drove the wagons. They had their own shul, and the so and sos had their own synagogue, and there's a you know 
apparently not. Right, and often in the States, it's, you know, it's more cultural. There's the Pakistani mosque, yeah. and there's the, you know, the, it's, yeah. it's like that. It's immigrant communities. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, but I want to respond to Vivian's question. What grabs you? And, and about the structure. Of, and I was thinking that I asked uh, Karun to bring her prayer up today because we can talk about it, but maybe it's time to just, you know, to, to kind of experience it. Because, uh, you know, the, all the talking still not going to paint that picture for us. Because I, I, I could share your, uh, okay, yeah, those are the five pillars of Islam, and da, 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 but I don't know, you know, so, so let's, let's go head in that direction. Would that be okay? Could you tell us, like, I think in response to Vivian's question, could you tell us personally what drew you to Islam? To Islam, yes, yes. Um, for me, um, the, the emphasis on the deep heart-centered um, longing for God is something, um, and, and that's you know, that's a Sufi trope, really. That's something that is uh, runs like a golden thread through all of Sufism. This longing for unity, this longing for the divine. I'm not saying it's only in Sufism; it's in most mystical traditions. But and but <laughs> but for me, the um, the way it's framed as the longing of the, the, the lover for the beloved and the beloved for the, lo for, for, for the, for the lover um, spoke, really just spoke to my heart, you know, through um, that. And then the practices, I, I, I personally find the embodied practice um, really helps me um, stay, keep, stay present. Um, the actual physical movements in the prayer, the movements in zikr, the, it, it's a very physical, um, particularly Sufism, is a very physical tradition. Um, body, soul, and spirit, it, all, it engages all of those in a very basic and beautiful way. And for myself, too, um, uh, as I... As I've, what's kept me going in Islam is actually the the the, the word that um, Matt, the phrase from the Quran that Matthew quoted, this idea of everywhere you turn, there is the face of God. For me, that has you know led to um, a, a really um, deep love of the created world as well as the unseen world, and um, a real consciousness of how important it is to take care of it. Um, there are beautiful ecological teachings in the Quran that have really um, inspired me and really caused me to change my life. So, um, and then it's amazing, it, the experience of zikr, there's just nothing like it. <laughs> it's ecstatic, it's wonderful. Um, actually, Matthew and, uh, and uh, Zakia and, and I were all at um, Rabia's um, uh, 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 ceremony. Yeah, or and, ceremony for you know, uh, we Rumi. Were, we were turning weekend. for, you know, a very long time. I, I, I lost track of time. It's just a very ecstatic mm. practice. And um, I personally love that about it. It's a pra I, I actually came to Sufism not, I, I did 
go to graduate school and you know study it eventually. But I actually knew very little about the intellectual background. I went to my first university Sufism course. I said, I know nothing about Sufism because it was all about ex the experience. Mm -hmm. It was all about the, the... Who was your teacher? That was a great answer. Thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> who I have two teachers. Uh, or, or I, um, one living and one has passed recently. Um, my, my, um, I, I'm part of, I'm part of the Chistia order. This is probably TMI, but I'll do it, say it anyway quickly. Um, I'm part of the Chistia order, which is an Indian Sufi order. Um, that's where my initiation is. And the first initiation I took was in a non-Islamic Sufi order in the Ruhaniyat, which is in uh, one of the orders that, that was first brought to this country by a man named Hazrat Anayat Khan, they, they do not, you do not, there's not any requirement um, to be part of Islam. And I, I actually was uh, like, my first like, I don't know, six months or so of going to the abode of the message, I didn't even like connect it with Islam. I went downstairs one morning to cook breakfast. I was part of the staff on a retreat and there were people observing the um, Ramadan fast who were eating breakfast before the sun rose. And, and I said, oh yeah, it's Sufi Sufism is part of Islam. So my <laughs> going, um, deepening my relationship with Islam, you know, was a gradual process. And, um, then, um, two years ago, on the Urs of Rumi, I actually took hand with a chist another Chistia Sheikh who was also one of my professors. Um, and that, was, that is a much more formal, although um, in many ways also very intersect. He was a, he's a very intersectional person. He would love to be sitting here. Um, his, name? his name was Ibrahim Farajashe, and he um, died last winter. Um, very um, an amazing. An amazing human being, um, and uh, I, I am still, you know, in contact with him in mm -hmm. on the, on the spiritual plane. Wow. <laughs> I have dreams, and you know, I feel like he appears to me, you know, speaks to me, guides me to some degree. Um, wow. Never enough, but <laughs> I long for more. That contact. would be. Mention his Jewish connection. Yes. 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 Oh. Yes. Um, he, Ibrahim, um, was a dear, dear friend of um, Reb Zalman, and he also um, uh, was part in um, the community he lived in in Berkeley. He was part of the um, uh, Jewish Burial Society, and had many, many, um, uh, you know, many, many. Um, uh, took part in many things in the Jewish community. And in fact, one of the women we traveled with is a woman who's trying to revive the um, priest, priesthood in Judaism. Oh, yes. Oh, um, Jill yes. Rabbi um, Jill Hammer. Uh, no, it no, was, no, it no. was uh, Taya. Taya Shear. Yeah, Taya Shear. Mm -hmm. And she and Ibrahim have collaborated. She's now teaching. And, and his son is now the peer, and they are they're doing um, meetings together. They're having... They're doing celebrations together. Mm -hmm. um, this um, the Islamic and the and the Jewish um, uh, priest, priest, priestess. Mm -hmm. So here we are in the in our brave new world of um, and it's much, I'm I'm in favor of it of um, where you can go to a experience a Sufi ritual 
separate and apart from its Islamic roots, and then find your way. You could take a class in Kabbalah at the Kabbalah mm -hmm. Center, disconnected from Jewish root, and then find your way. You can take a mindfulness meditation retreat. You can go to a Christian centering prayer retreat or intensive without being a Christian, and then work your way into the church. Right. right. And so this is the ex... What were esoteric practices, meaning they were, they were hidden. These were practiced for the initiates. Yeah. Uh, and you had to be fully versed in the, in the surrounding structure of your tradition before you could be initiated into these paths. In, the, in our globalizing society, this has been turned upside down. Yeah. And inside out, I should say. And uh, they're now exoteric which gives us the opportunity to experience them. That's a beautiful thing. It's also, in the worst of the new age, a completely cheapening thing because you can become an experienced junkie, right? You can think that this is the purpose of spiritual practice, to have great experiences, right? That's what we do, you know, we, become, we want to try all these experiences and somehow we get confused that the experience is the goal. No, the experience is the vehicle to bring you closer to God, as you understand it. And, and if to, it's not making you more compassionate and justice-oriented... More compassionate, <laughs> more loving, more connected to other human beings, if it's making you more of a consumer of more workshops, then you're... <laughs> and that's all you see, then you're spinning your wheels in a form of idolatry, which is the idolatry of having an experience. And that's the negative side of all of this. I hope I'm expressing myself clearly. Yes. The positive side is that we can sit together and share this stuff. Um, and that's this, this is the way of, of conversion so often in our Western world, particularly for, for, I think, American Muslims often, they do come in through a Sufi lineage and then learn Islam afterwards. Whereas in any traditional Muslim cult country, you can't get into the Sufi lineage until you have, you know, mastered the basic exoteric practices of Islam, then that's, and here it's been flipped. The same with Christianity. I, I have someone I'm, who's meeting me for spiritual direction, and she is now tiptoeing into the church after having first encountered Christian contemplative practice um, through centering prayer and classes like that. And so it's finding the Christian mysticism and then it leading into the exoteric framework. So it's Right, just, and the same is true. I mean, people will, one of the things, only things people will generally know about Kabbalah is you're not supposed to do that till you're 40, right? <laughs> Unless it's America. <laughs> well, that's the point. Right. The point was, and 40 was not a literal number. Um, the point was that you, weren't, you were not to be initiated into these uh, into these practices and conscious states of consciousness, uh, way practices that lead you to higher states of consciousness until you were fully grounded in the supporting texts and, and way of life. And so that, uh, now why? Um, that's the way it was. I think one reason why is that uh, um, when, if you are an adept who opens up to these states of consciousness, it can blow you out of the water. Yes. It's your container in which you then bring that beautiful energy back into. And again, to reflect on the negatives of our open-ended possibility is that you can spin out. It's not, it's not only, a, I don't think it's only a container 
um, you know, for the experience. But it, there's also like a, there's a there's some moral grounding right. that each of these traditions offers. Moral matrix. Yeah, yes, yeah. and and I think that really can get totally lost in. Um, you know, kind of the new Ecstasy. age versions yeah. of these practices. Right. And yeah. it's really, I, I mean, personally, I mean, the reason I sought that second initiation was because I, I wanted to ground my practice more in the Islamic roots of, of it. I felt the need for, that's not something my other teacher could offer me. I felt the need for Interesting. the, for that, you know, I needed support for my Islamic practice. And Islam, the exoteric practices of Islam, I have to say, uh, you know, are pretty, like, they're pretty rigorous. Five times a day praying, an, an entire month of fasting where you, and, it, and particularly... And, and, and you should also mention the ethical, the ethical demands. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. would you describe those? Well, I mean, not to get too much into... Um, the um, you know there's an anti-usury portion. There's the whole um, uh, guarding of your of your um, sexual morality is a very big deal in Islam. There's um, uh, it's well, it's a whole charity and acts of loving kindness. A absolutely, all of that. It's all p a piece of the, um, the 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 package, and it's. E very easy in this workshop culture to forget that. And so, so to have that, um, and, and then there's the, you know, just the social justice piece of, and, and, the, and the having a community piece, which is, which is um, hard when, when the model is we come together for a camp or, or a workshop and then we disperse. Um, so the, the hard, messy work of community um, is actually the body in which that spirit dwells. Um, and uh, Kathy? I just want to say it's been an interesting circle to come back to where we began with you, Matthew, talking about this journey into the heart that nonetheless goes through our head. Mm -hmm. and, and I think right. the, the reason to not be bored with this discourse is that this is... It reminds me of, of abstract expressionists who couldn't draw a line. Mm -hmm. And the difference in their work, though it might look the same as some of those who had completely um, developed, <coughs> they, were, they were fabulous figurative artists. And from that jumping off point, were able to take us to a whole other level. Mm -hmm. And so the, the richness of this That's how you get to Carnegie Hall. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. as, if, as the ultimate state of being yeah. the, the richness of this conversation today and just the doors that have been open I know for me in terms of just coming up with a way of discussing these three traditions in relation to one another that the way to the heart I think really is here through the head and, that's um, beautiful so thank you for that frame so here's my suggestion Zakia is that wants to share something but then let's conclude with a prayer practice okay, okay. Two things, and I'm so glad you brought this up, Rabbi. The whole idea of practices without a foundation. In my own very close circle, I've known someone who did a lot of esoteric practices and had a break with reality, who had never had a break with reality before, and really just went off the deep end. 
And then Karuna, what you said about, um, you know, everywhere I look, I see the face of God. Mm -hmm. I just love that so much. And I don't remember what the source, whether it was one of Rumi's writings or something else. But, but in addition to that, it was um, someone who was who looked at his executioner and said, oh, beloved, you cannot fool me. Mm -hmm. I would know your face anywhere. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Right? Is that... Or, were those the direct words, or are you probably? I I'm not familiar. Anyway. I don't know. It sounds like something. Uh, wow. I, I have a couple of stories. I'll share. I'll, I'll save them. Jewish stories about, not just stories, but core teachings about placing God's um, presence before us always. That we'll, I'll talk about next time. Thank you. So would you? Because we have about five minutes left. What can we do? Are we gonna do? Are we? Should we? Well, anybody who wants to. Does an, what, would you like to do Don't the Don't worry. Prayer? She, she, yeah. I will? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you going to join me? I can't. Uh, yes. Do you want me to? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to do it by myself. Okay. Good. Of course not. Anyone who would like to join? Are the five times that you pray, are those prescribed by hours or? The sun. Yes. The sun. Yes. Just like the uh, three times in Judaism. The, um, the, I think this is the Kibla. <laughs> oh, well, east. east, east um, it's northeast. It's, uh, well, we know, I can just tell you, I can tell you that east is this way. Because our synagogue is oriented east. So north is that way. Wheresoever you turn. Yes, that's true, but I do have. Oh, and it's time for Aser. <laughs> that's the afternoon prayer. I have. So I have this cool little compass on my smartphone. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> it wow. Will, it, will, it will give me the athan, which is weird because I usually have a better sense of direction than this. So this is the Qibla. This is the direction of, of um, Mecca. Are you going to stand with me? Or? Sure, I will. Do we need a call or are you going to uh, go with call? Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu an Muhammadan Rasulillah. A shadow in Mohammed in Rasulillah. Haya al Saleh. Haya al Saleh. Haya al Saleh. Haya al Saleh. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. La ilaha illallah. Uh, just usually, this is a prayer that's done silently. Um, I'll, I'll speak the words because um, usually the afternoon prayer is four silent cycles. I'll do two um, spoken cycles, so you, just so you have a sense of what we're saying. 
And the first words I'll say are the Fatiha, which is the first surah of the Quran, and is part of all of the cycles of the prayer. Adu Balahim and Shaitan Irjim. Bismillah Rahman Irahim. Alhamdulillah, Ilvrabil Alameen. Arahman Irahim. Maliki Amundin. Yakanabudua, what Yakanastain. Edena Sarat Amustahim. Sarat Aladina, Ananta Alayhim. Gayru Magdubi Alayhim. Samiallahu liman hamidah. Rabbana wa baka Allahu akbar. Allahu Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Wa lillihil nashrikul maqrib Fa'ainama tuhalufatun wa jalallah Inna Allahi wahsil alim Allahu Akbar Sami Allahu liman hamidah Rabbana wa lakal Allahu
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa May there, there be blessings on this gathering. May our hearts unite as one. May the fire of unity and the celebration of multiplicity descend on this gathering. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. <laughs> Is that Tinkerbell? <laughs> oh, before we before we before we um, disperse, we'll meet again in two weeks. Uh, so a lot's going to happen. Merry Christmas to those celebrating Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. May it be a year of unexpected good things because we don't know just remember that we don't know so may unexpected good things be coming this year and uh, I also wanted to sit, so carry this experience with you so we can actually resume from here in a couple of weeks uh, and I, I do want to make one quick last comment which is that we know that Many of us, because of how it's portrayed both by certain Muslims and what gets into the news, Allahu Akbar sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, part of what we're doing is we want to redeem our traditions, all of us, from those who would shout it as a form of violence. That's not the only way it is. It's also this way, which now we get to see. I've never seen that. I've never witnessed it. Like, and so I'm deeply grateful, and uh, um, that we're all that we're here, and that we're willing to uh, that we're eager to find the mystical heart of these traditions. And I just want to say that. Um you probably have a lot of questions, and it may be hard to hold them over for two weeks. So, as long as Zaki is willing, I'm um, to uh, oh, great. wait while I. You take can hang questions. around a little while. I can hang around a little while, and if you want to ask myself or uh, Matthew <coughs> questions about what you saw, I I probably should. I we ran out of time. No should. No, no, no but I probably I would have liked. To, let me put it this way: would have liked to have given you a little more framework. We'll do um, that next time. Next time. Okay, Go through the whole thing again next time. We'll do it again yeah. next time. Yeah, that would be great. Laura? One, one quick word about that phrase, Allahu Akbar. We often translate it as God is great. It's actually better translated, God is greater. And it's a reminder that God always transcends our concepts, our, our, our ideas, our theologies, our religious frameworks. 
we we praise God through those, we reach out to God through those, but always Allahu Akbar. Always God is greater than these. In the Kaddish we say, God, despite all these praises and adjectives, God is greater than anything we could ever that means greater and higher than any praises and that we could utter in this lifetime. Yeah. Laura? Yeah, I just have a very earth, earthly question. We have our handout on uh, bibliography. We don't have a Christian one yet. Oh, I made it. I just haven't brought it. <laughs> I actually typed it up two weeks ago, and it's just sitting on my computer. Uh, you can email it to me. Okay, all right. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Is there anyone else who's going to Socrates that I could catch a ride with? Uh, who needs a ride? I do. You do. Oh, I can take you. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I'll take her. That'll give us a little chance to, you know. Okay. That was good. Cool. That was fun. It's nice to hear you speaking. Oh, yeah? It's nice to the community of traditions. I would speak for the Buddhist, but there's no need to. Thank you for joining. She said she didn't want to do it alone, so. I hope you'll do, do a Eucharist with I'd love to do a, a Eucharist that, that was open enough that those who were comfortable could participate. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Because I was very moved by Yeah, God willing, we'll do that. Is the person across the room? Yeah, yeah, we'll gather this week. You're welcome to join. I have a, I have a standing gallery. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Uh, anybody who wants to put chairs away, we should leave about 15 of them out and the rest... Yeah, I didn't know. Away. I went up for that word. I didn't say for the zikr, but I went just to say hello to everyone and I had dinner. And Natano was there. And he said he's actually there there now. He is the teacher in residence. So he's going to go away for January for a little bit, I think, but he'll be back. So he's, he's around. We yeah, we should. We should find out when he's definitely there, because I know he said he's going to go away briefly to do some teaching in Boulder, and then we'll be back. Is that for me to join you for the day? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to go up. Okay. Hello, Cynthia Bourget, is that her name? Bourget. Cynthia Bourget. I saw something from her in an old um, Parabola magazine. Yeah? She's really top drawer. She's really what? Top drawer. She is. She's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, which Parabola piece was it? Gosh, I can't remember, but she was she was making some fine distinctions, which often get lost. Mm -hmm. you know, and the tendency to to generalize and to and to uh, scale down the teachings. I need to be left with the hands. Yeah, she was very sensitive. She usually is. <laughs> um, to real voice. So you have a real voice, is it? Yeah, I was going to quote, um, there's a poem I quoted a bit from Simeon the New Theologian last week, and I was going to 
give everyone the whole poem, but I'll do it next time. Very, very wonderful. Thank you. Oh, cool. Thank yes. you. I'm very much a last Episcopalian, oh. so I appreciate your, your cool. philosophy. How long have you been? Have you been to all the classes so far? Yeah, except yeah, yeah. for one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I think the next two we'll probably miss. Okay. We're gonna be your name is Kathy. Kathy. Matthew. Matthew. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So good. Thank, Thank you, Kathy. You. Are you here in Woodstock? We live. Uh, we have a place in West Chicane. Okay. And then a place in uh, Westchester also. So okay. we're sort of half here and half right. there. We don't. We don't know where we are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, good to meet you. Yeah. yeah. Anytime you want to tiptoe into the Episcopal scene, you're welcome to visit St. Gregory's. I, I'm thinking about it. Okay. No <laughs> pressure. My husband not come if it belongs here. So oh, good, good. You have to vote. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know. Is it? Probably. I don't know, unless Jonathan turned it up. I don't know how to tell. There are red lights on it. We watched a movie at my mother's place on a Saturday when we couldn't go out called Dope. It takes place in London, about a 70 something year old Jewish baker who is being cut out, forced out by this chain of grocery stores. And his apprentice, his assistant, leaves to go work for the enemy, and his cleaners from South Sudan, and her son is dabbling with getting into selling pot to make money. So they can move out of the dump that they've been living in project. And she brings him along and says, hire him as your apprentice. So he does, and how they and their relationship. But in one couple of times, he shows Washing his feet and praying and doing just that. Now, you were standing like this, but I also just saw on, on um, Facebook this morning standing like this. Or I don't know, no, not doing the prayers. But, but then, well, but women, women's hands are higher. Men's hands are down here, and women's oh, are okay. But, but standing like this. And the, the, the young man in the movie did it, and then I saw a picture okay. of okay. Muslim men. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, not actually praying, but, but standing, standing like shoulder that. to shoulder like this. Oh, good, 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 good. I always, I never know from up here what it's like. You know, I think oh, we're getting also heady and talky, and is it too, you know? No, so good. No, good. I mean there was so. When, when she said that about not being born, Jonathan and I both heard, I mean, I didn't understand as much as he said, I'm sure, but recognize some of the cognate words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ram yeah.